0: Good morning. I must begin with some words of disclosure. I am a hypocrite. I can be arrogant and selfish. I have been known to stretch, conceal, or slightly massage the truth. I am sometimes inconsiderate and insecure. I struggle with lust and impure thoughts. My ego often rages out of control and I battle foolish pride. I can be lazy and foolhardy with my time. I can get angry, petty, and ill-tempered. I am sarcastic and cynical. I am a Christian. With those words, author David Burchett opens up his book, When Bad Christians Happen to Good People. What a title, huh? Unfortunately, I would guess that most, if not all of us in here, have been on the receiving end of bad Christians. And we've probably also been on the giving end as well. Truthfully speaking, I have been hurt and disappointed with other brothers and sisters in Christ, those who would call themselves Christian. But honestly, the Christian I find myself getting disappointed more with than anybody else is myself. The sins that I'm most aware of when it comes to clergy members are my own sins. So just as a disclaimer for those of you who might be newer to Bachelor Creek, if you're looking for a church with a perfect pastor, keep on looking, okay? You're not going to find it here. I am a self-confessed fellow struggler. In fact, I think one of the ways that people set themselves up to get hurt or get wounded in the church is when they put leadership on a certain pedestal and that leader, I assure you, in some way, some form, somehow, sometime is going to fail you or fail to meet your expectations. And I want you to know that everything I say today is going to be set against the backdrop of my own acknowledgement of my own need for God's grace in my life. Burchett continues his book with these words. He says, this book is written for the person who has been hurt by a judgmental or unfriendly church. For the woman who has been sexually or emotionally abused by a Christian man. For the guy ripped off by a businessman brandishing a Christian symbol on his sign or business card. For the unmarried teenage girl rejected by the church for getting pregnant. For the person made to feel unwelcome because of color or position in life. For the man or woman made to feel less valuable because of appearance or dress. For all the people who felt uncomfortable in the place where they should feel most welcome. For the people rejected because they held a belief, a political view, or a philosophy that differed from the, quote, accepted view. This book is for everyone who has been disgusted by the hypocritical arrogance of a church congregation or its leadership. Aren't you glad you came to church today? Yeah. I'm going to tell you what, folks. The same crowd for which David Burchett wrote this book is the same crowd for which I am going to give this message today. Not only just for those people who've been wounded in the church, but for those people as well who've inflicted wounds on others. So whether it's a surface level scratch or whether it's a deep gouge in your soul, here's what I can assure you of. If you spend any significant time at all in the church of Jesus Christ, you are going to be wounded at some time. I've talked to people who haven't set foot in a church in years because of something happened, a wound that was created that never was able to be healed over time. And I'll be honest with you, the greatest hurts that I've faced in life, the deepest wounds that I've felt, the most gut-wrenching moments of my faith journey have all happened from people of faith. And these hurts come in a variety of ways, do they not? There can be financial mismanagement on those in leadership. There can be sexual scandal that happens that that never gets addressed or talked about. There can maybe be a betrayal of a confidence. You told a a trusted Christian friend something in secret because you thought you could. And before you knew it, that secret was no longer secret anymore. Maybe it was a narcissistic church leader who, in order to serve his own ego and his own agenda, he was willing to plow through and plow down whoever he had to to make sure he got his way. Maybe it was gossip. That something was said about you, true or untrue. It didn't need to be said. It didn't need to be spread. And you found yourself in kind of a reputation damage management control. Or maybe there was just a time where you were hurt broken, grieving, and nobody responded, nobody cared, nobody called. You felt like that bloodied, beaten man in the story of the Good Samaritan and the religious leaders just trotted right on by, never giving attention to the fact that you were hurting Maybe you came from a church where there was always constant fighting and bickering and there were factions and there was just never a sense of peace and harmony and unity in the church. There was a young rabbi who discovered that he had a problem in his newly acquired congregation. Apparently during the service, when it came time to pray, pray, half of the congregation would stand and the other half would remain seated. Both insisted that their way was the right way, and they shouted at one another to try to convince one another of their way. He tried to intervene and tried to bring about peace and harmony, but nothing he did was successful. So, in desperation, here's what he did he resorted to talking to the 99 year old rabbi, his predecessor, who had founded this little congregation. And he said to him, can you please tell me, when you were here at at, at this congregation, he says, what was the tradition? Was the tradition to stand during the prayers? No, that was not the tradition. So it was the tradition to sit during the prayers. No, that was not the tradition. Well, then tell me what the tradition was, because I've got chaos all around me. I got half the people standing and shouting, half the people sitting and screaming. Ah, he says, that was the tradition. And when things like that happen, that just go deep in faith communities, we know what can happen as a result of that, right? Factions get created, rumors get started, gossip starts to spread, and before you know it, you've got the meltdown in the body of Christ. And when these things happen... Those people who are already cynical and they're skeptical and they're looking from the outside in, you know what their response is? Here's their response. If that's church, if that's Christianity, thank you, I'll just stay home on Sunday mornings and eat my Cheerios and watch NASCAR, right? And who can blame them? And that's why Jesus, in the pages of the New Testament, you will find him addressing a certain sin over and over and over and over. And it wasn't lying, and it wasn't stealing, and it wasn't adultery. Do you know what it was? It was religious hypocrisy. His sharpest words were not for the common pagan or heathen of the day. His sharpest words were for the the religious people of the day who he said, you're hypocritical because you claim to know the Bible, but yet you don't know God. And they used their religion to enhance their own reputation, to elevate their own ego, to pad their own pockets, but they really did not know the heart of God. And here's what Jesus says to them. And listen to these today with fresh ears, okay? He says in Matthew 23 27 Woe to you! Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are just full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. And we understand this imagery that Jesus creates here, right? You go to any cemetery, and it'll have this perfectly manicured lawn, It'll have these really pretty, colorful flowers on the tombstone. It'll have these beautifully high polished marble granite tombstones, sometimes with perfectly etched pictures in them. But if you just take out a shovel and start digging a few feet down, you're going to encounter death, decay, stench, rottenness, and putrefaction. And that's what Jesus says about all these religious leaders who are hypocritical, that they look so good, they looked perfect, as, as white as the driven snow on the outside. But on the inside, when you look at their hearts, there's death, there's darkness, there's spiritual rottenness taking place on the inside. And this kind of negativity and hypocrisy can have such an impact, not just on the church itself, but on the unbelieving world outside of the church. So here's the question that we need to ask ourselves this morning. What can the people of Jesus do about this? How do we remedy this? Well, here's one solution. We have to acknowledge our own sin. Because here's what my gut tells me. My gut tells me that the vast majority of the people who came here today and who've assembled this morning, you're not just here for the free coffee and donuts. Right? Maybe a handful of you. But maybe, I'm guessing, the vast majority of you are here because you acknowledge that you've got the same problem I've got. You've got the sin problem. And you need some treatment for that which ails you. Right? Myself included. I'm confronted with this on a regular basis. I think about that little Christian cartoon that shows the preacher's wife talking to the preacher. And she says to him, Hey, I got an idea. How about this week you be charming at home and you be grumpy at church? Evidently, a little inconsistency right there, right? And I get it. I've been that guy. I've been the guy who's been all smiles and how are you and handshakes and life's great and life's fine and I'll treat you sensitively and I'll be kind and patient with you, but during the week, get me with my kids, I can be impatient, I can be grumpy. When it comes to my wife, I can be very, very insensitive at times. But I'm going to tell you, friends, more than anything, I want this place to be the one place that people can come in this community where we can just be real, where we can take off the mask, and we can say, you know what? I've messed up. I'm screwed up, messed up, jacked up, and any other whatever you want to say, that's me. And I need the grace of God. I depend upon the love of God to help fix these things in me that I so hate and despise about myself. And we just gather together and we say, yeah, here's my problem and here's my problem. And I'm going to give grace to you and you're going to give grace to me in return. So this morning, let me just say, to those of you who've been hurt, you've been burned, you've been betrayed, you've been mistreated, taken advantage of, abused, whatever word you want to use to describe your hurt, I'm sorry. And I'm especially sorry if that has come from me or the hands of any other leader here in this church. Well, we've all got to acknowledge our sin. Another thing that we need to do is we need to stop the sin spin. Isn't that so often what happens? Human beings are masters at this. We've perfected the art of of spinning the sin problem, right? We learned it from our great-great-great-grandparents in the Garden of Eden. The first thing that happened when Adam and Eve sinned is they hid. And they literally tried to cover it up with fig leaves, right? And we've been doing it ever since. It's the natural thing to do in the political world, right? Those of you who were around during the Watergate era... You remember the documents and the testimonies and the tapes, and you remember the spin. You remember them saying, I am not a crook, right? And then about 30 years after that, you saw on television in Living Color another president say, I did not have sexual relations with that woman. And then when it was exposed that he did, all sorts of spin and cover-ups and this and that, and we'll define what you mean by the word is. You remember all that nasty stuff? So it happens at a human level, a political level. It happens at a corporate level. You remember when Enron was having their meltdown? And you remember when Lehman Brothers, before the recession in 2008, right before everything fell through, right before the ceiling dropped, they were saying to the very last second, everything's fine, what are you talking about? And then the collapse came. So there's all this spin that we do as human beings, trying to make something look not so bad as it really is. And hiding and cover up in the church when dark things happen causes so many problems, folks. We know that just in the last decade, 15 years, we've seen the lid blown completely off the the Catholic Church's child sex abuse scandal, right? And it was a double hurt Not only did you have these men and women who grew up in the church who were abused by a trusting priest, but then knowingly the the Catholic organization transferred these priests to other churches to where they could perpetuate that same thing on other innocent victims. So it was a double hurt, but yet the church has tried to spin it and and, and say things and cover up until the lid was completely blown off of it. But here's the interesting thing about Scripture. Scripture. God never covers up the embarrassing behavior of his leaders. When Noah got drunk and naked, did God try to cover it up? When Abraham had a lying problem, did God try to excuse and say, eh, it's not that bad, they're just white lies? When Peter denied Jesus three times, did Jesus try to spin that in some way? When King David committed adultery with Bathsheba and then had her husband killed, did God try to some way cover that up or mask it over? Because after all, David's a man after my own heart. David tried to cover it up. David tried to spin it until he had his moment of truth. Psalm 32, 3. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. In my years of ministry, friends, I've seen and I've read numerous stories about numerous scandals in churches. Financial mismanagement, sexual scandals, abuse, legalism, where leaders try to to control or manipulate their members of their church. And every time when they try to spin it, when they try to cover it up, when they don't come clean, here's what happens. There's suspicion and there's distrust and the church, and even more than the church, Jesus himself ends up with a black eye. But at the same time, when churches have openness, honesty, transparency, the exact opposite happens when trust and credibility is established in the eyes of those looking in. Now the truth is this morning, you don't know what my wounds I've suffered are and I don't know the extent of the wounds that you've suffered in the church. But here's what I know. We all need wound care to an extent. And I know this is going to be hard for some of you to hear because there's the old saying that I think where we've all been that we like to nurse a grudge. But the path to healing, the path to freedom always has to begin with forgiveness. Because here's what I've noticed in my own life. The closer I get to forgiveness and reaching that point of freedom in my life, that wound on my heart that hurts so bad, slowly starts to close. The more I step away from forgiveness and I harbor resentment and, and, and hatred or frustration at somebody, that wound just gets ripped wide open and it starts to, to, to get very, very infectious and it affects the rest of me in significant ways. The Los Angeles Times carried a story about a guy named David Hagler. David Hagler uh, served as a part-time umpire in an adult recreational baseball league. And what Hagler did one day is he was out driving and he was caught speeding by a police officer. And he acknowledged the fact that he was speeding, but he tried to plead his case to police officer. He said, officer, I want you to know I'm typically a very careful driver. I was in kind of a hurry, and please don't write this ticket to me because I don't want to think about what it's going to do to my insurance rates. But the officer wrote the ticket and said, listen, if you want to fight this, you're just going to have to take it to the courts. Well, a while later, there was the first day of the baseball season. And you want to guess who the first person to step up to bat was? The officer who wrote the ticket. He recognized Hagler. Hagler recognized him. And he said to Hagler, hey, how'd that ticket thing turn out? And Hagler said, just so you know, you better swing at everything today. And you know what? That's kind of the dream scenario that we all kind of paint in our minds, right? That time that we can get them back for something that they've done to us, right? But listen, friends. When others go low road, you've got to try as hard as you can to take the high road. A good friend of mine told me one time, never wrestle with a pig because you'll both get dirty and the pig likes it, all right? So take that home with me today, with you today. Now let me clarify something about forgiveness, okay? And I need you to hear me. Just because you forgive somebody who has wronged you doesn't necessarily mean that you will be able to or sometimes necessarily should you reconcile with that person. If that person has exhibited a great level of abuse and deception and that they've been manipulative to you or they're just a constant source of pain in your life, reconciliation may not be possible and it may not even be advisable in your relationship with them because it could be so unhealthy or dangerous for you to have a relationship with a person at that kind of level. There have been Christian counselors who've written whole books about this, about something that we call boundaries that we have to set with people when they hurt us at deep levels. We can be kind to them, courteous to them, pray for them, forgive them, but at some point you almost have to keep them at arm's length because of the type of hurt and pain that they've brought continually into your life. Now, I don't know how big the hurt is that you faced at the hands of other people. I know how big my hurts are that I've faced. But let me tell you something, folks. Whatever size your hurt, whatever size my hurt, there's always something that reigns supremely, that's always much bigger, that's always much more superior than your hurt or my hurt. You know what that is? It's the identity of Jesus himself. Think about this. If Jesus is who he claimed to be, if he is the way, the truth, and the life, if Jesus was the substitute payment for your sins and my sins, that has staggering implications for all of us. That is a much, much, much bigger issue than any issue that we have with disappointment or hurt that we've faced from the hands of other brothers and sisters in Christ. Let me give you a little perspective on this of an illustration that was once shared with me that I, that I could relate to that I think hopefully you can relate to as well. Let's say that you are going to your elementary child's fifth and sixth grade band concert at school. You ever been to one of those? Mm, right? Painful, right? But you're going to the concert to support your little fifth or sixth grader, and on the playlist that night is Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, all right? And you've never heard Beethoven's Fifth Symphony before. Would you guess at some point at that concert that some of those kids are going to hit some clinkers, Some flat notes, and they're going to get off step and off tempo. Would you guess that's going to be the case that night? So how fair would it be for you to go away from that concert, hearing what you heard, and go away and say, man, that Beethoven was an awful composer. Did you hear that arrangement that those kids played based upon the supposedly great composer? No, it would not be fair of you at all to judge the the incredible greatness of Beethoven's fifth based upon how you heard fifth and sixth graders pulling it off. That would be an injustice to him. And So I just want to encourage you this morning in the same way. Don't judge the great composer by those of us who mess up at playing his music. Whether layperson, leader, whoever. We're all like fifth and sixth graders playing Beethoven's 5th. Here's how Paul said it. Paul said it in Romans 7:18. For I have the desire to do what is good, But I cannot carry it out, for I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Paul says, I see right in front of me the playlist that God has, the notes that he wants me to hit, but I hit a clinker there, I hit a flat note here, I play the completely wrong note there, I'm out of rhythm, out of step, I can't keep up with the tempo. It's like he told young Timothy, here is a trustworthy saying, worthy of full acceptance. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. And my guess is that if Paul struggled with sin, as he says in Romans 7, and as he tells it, Timothy, I'm the worst sinner that the world had ever seen, my guess is that you struggle with it, and I struggle with it. So this morning, I'm going to ask you to get your eyes off the musicians, and get your eyes back on the composer. Because he's the one who came from heaven and earth to earth because he could not stand the thought of being without you forever. He's the one who came on a search and rescue mission and who carried a cross so that you and I someday would not have to carry our own cross. He can be trusted. He won't hurt you. He won't wound you. And it's that perfect one who knocks on the heart of your door this morning saying, I'll start the healing process in you if you'll let me. So it's my hope today that today can be the start of a day of healing, maybe a turnaround point for some of you who maybe held on to something way, way, way too long. And yeah, every judge and every jury might say, you're right, but they also might say, stop playing the victim. You're wasting a whole lot of energy that could be used in a whole lot more productive ways. What I'm telling you this morning, friends, is you just need to give it to Jesus. That's what I've had to do, whether it comes to forgiving Christian family, Christian leaders, church members... I've had to just turn it all over to Jesus and say, Jesus, help me to find the freedom in this that you want me to have and help me to understand other people need grace like I need grace. Now, if you're going to be serving communion here in a moment, right now would be a great time for you to make your way to the back as we lead into this special part of the service. The whole part of this series, the whole reason why we're doing this, is to ask some of the bigger, tougher questions and dig deep to get some answers that we're all seeking and even deal with some of these hard, critical things like these wounds that we can bring to the table. And in knowing that, I know that there are some who sit in the pews. Maybe this is your first time back at the church for a long, long time. Maybe some of you, you only come once a month. And maybe the reason that you give yourself is, I don't go to church much or I don't go to church at all because the church is full of hypocrites. If that's an excuse that you use, can I just challenge you on that and just say, in saying that, that's hypocritical in itself. Are you telling me that you always, always, always practice what you preach? That you never step outside of the bounds of what you say your convictions are? that you never color outside of the lines one bit what you've told somebody else, and you never violate that. You always stay colored within the lines. I don't believe that. And it's an old, tired argument. That's why when somebody says to me, I don't come to church because the church is full of hypocrites, I say to them, the church is not full of hypocrites. We always have room for one more, right? And it sounds like that's you, buddy, so come on in, right? So none of us is perfect. But the communion table reminds us of one who is. And I want you to think for a moment about that very first night that communion was ever served. And I want you to think about the people to who it was served to. The cup and the loaf were passed down to Judas. Who would betray Jesus just within a matter of hours. And then Peter takes his sip and takes his bite. Peter, who said, Lord, I would die for you. And then hours later, we find him denying he even knows who Jesus is. Then there's the rest of them, the ten that are left. And when Jesus needs them to be close, to be in prayer, to be a friend in need. at his most time of desperation, they are nowhere to be found. They have run like scared little children. You know what all these people have in common? They were a great source of hurt and disappointment to Jesus. And then he died for them. And he died for you, and he died for me even though I disappoint him and I disappoint you and you disappoint him and you disappoint me. We're all in this together. And the same grace that he gives is the grace that he asks us to extend to one another. Won't you bow with me right now during this time and I just want you to be thinking that maybe today, right now at this time, You just acknowledge your own sin. You just acknowledge, Lord, I'm a sinner. I'm not going to try to cover it up. I'm not going to try to spin it, excuse it, blame. I'm not going to do it, Lord. I'm just a sinner in and of myself. And Lord, I'm going to ask that you give me the capacity and the power to forgive those who trespass against me so that in some shape or form I can have my trespasses against you forgiven this is to be a time scripture says when each person examines themselves and i think that would be a wise thing to do right now is the hurt ever going to end no not on this side of heaven are people always going to treat us the way we want them to treat us no i'm sorry not on this side of heaven But just remember, sitting next to you right now is just another musician trying to play the notes, trying to keep step, trying not to hit a clinker, just like you're trying not to. And the focus isn't to be on the musician, the focus is to be on the composer. So let's talk to him about this. Father, we just come to you right now acknowledging, Lord, that we are fallen human beings. And it doesn't excuse things. doesn't justify things. It's not the red card we can throw up. But it is what it is. So, Lord, give us the strength to be able to forgive, the honesty and the self-awareness not to spin, and the grace, Lord, that we ask you for that covers a multitude of sins May that same grace we extend to the fellow musicians playing right next to us. We pray, Lord, for your grace during this time. I know it's been a hard, hard truth today, Lord, but something that we all need to hear. And your kingdom and this church will be better if we heed this today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.